We are delighted that you've joined us for an hour of inspirational music on Songs of Praise.
heart longs for a little bit of hope. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. Come, every soul by sin oppressed, there's mercy with the Prince of the name. 
I shall know Him and redeemed by His side. I shall stand. I shall know Him. I shall know Him by the Prince.
Endeavouring to encourage, inspire, uplift and soothe, we hope you are enjoying Songs of Praise.
your only son, no sin to hide, but you have sent him from your side to walk upon this guilty song and to become the Lamb of God. Oh, Lamb of God, sweet Lamb of God, oh, how I love the Lamb of God. Oh, wash me in His precious blood. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Your gift of love, they crucified. They laughed and scorned him as he died. The Sacrifice the Lamb of God. O Lamb of God, sweet Lamb of God, oh, how I love the Lamb of God. Oh, wash me in His precious blood. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. I was so lost, I should have died, but you have brought me to your side to be led by. Staff and rock, and to be called a child of God. O Lamb of God, sweet Lamb of God, I love the holy Lamb of God. Oh, wash me in.
144 verse 9 I will sing a new song to you God on a ten-stringed lyre I will sing praises to you
have searched me, you have known me, you're acquainted with my ways. You have laid your hand upon me, heard my thoughts from See if there be 
Every day, they find themselves just going through the paces. They hide their empty souls, showing only happy painted faces. And when the day was done, when the Are finally out. They've gone through all the motions, but what was it all about? And I've had a deeper look. You. Just a story in some old book, and is it all the same old news? They knew that he. Calvary's tree, and they knew that He died to save, to save you and me. But it was all the same, the same old story, the same old ring. They knew it all by heart, but it didn't seem to mean a thing. And I've had a deeper look. You never really had to choose. And is God just a story? Some old book, and is it all the same old news? And 
choose And is God just a story It's our privilege to share songs of praise with our listeners on 3ABN Australia Radio.
Songs of Praise is a production of 3ABN Australia Radio. Join us next time for more inspirational music. Today, in 3ABN Australia Radio's book reading, we're continuing I Saw God's Hand by the late missionary pastor Elwyn Martin. Much of the book is set in Papua New Guinea and is broadcast with the kind permission of amazing facts. In our last episode, Elwyn was wanting to tow a small whaleboat to his mission station behind a larger vessel. But during the first night, he was caught in a severe storm and did not know where he was. Twice the rope holding the whaleboat in tow had broken, but the boat was successfully retrieved. They then decided to use a metal chain to tow the whaleboat, but it too had broken and the nose of the boat had been torn out. They decided to leave the whaleboat behind. Resuming our chapter. Although I felt that our boat couldn't possibly weather the seas much longer, I decided to put out to sea again. Not having the slightest clue where we were, I set a course that I believed would be straight out to sea. With the second in command at the wheel, I went down to my cabin and poured out my heart to the master of the seas, telling him that I knew he could rebuke the wind and the sea as he had when his disciples were caught in a storm on the Sea of Galilee. Then he spoke those words, Peace, be still. I told him that we were lost in heavy seas. An impression swept over me to alter our course to the compass heading 090, due east. This seemed all wrong to me, but I hurried to the wheelhouse, set the course, and told the boy not to alter course unless I told him to do so. Then, going on deck, I posted a boy to watch for any sign of a village firelight. He replied, Master, you would never see anything on a night like this. I asked him to listen for any sound of waves breaking on the reef. Again, he replied, you would never hear anything on a night like this. The only way he was able to prevent his being washed overboard was to lash himself to the mast with what was left of the whaleboat's tow line. Returning to the wheel, I took over again, but every 15 or 20 minutes I would have a boy take over for a few minutes while I went on deck to ask whether there was any sign of a fire or sound of the reef. Every time I was told the same words, Master, you couldn't see or hear anything on a night like this. Some little time later, I was suddenly impressed to make a major change in my course. This I did immediately. Again and again I went on deck to ask whether anything could be seen or heard above the crashing seas. At last the boy said, Master, the sea seems to be calming a little. And then, in a matter of moments, we were in calm water. We throttled the engine right back and prayed. Shortly daylight broke, and can you believe it, we were safely inside the reef that we had gone out through at ten o'clock the night before. We were well inside the place where we had anchored. We ran alongside Dave Lamont's boat and he called out, 
Padre, I thought you were going at ten o'clock last night. I told him that I had, but he flatly refused to believe me. He said, no man, regardless of what kind of skipper he is, could put out to sea at that time last night and find his way back in through the reef and be alongside my boat here before sunrise. Maybe a couple of hours after sunrise, yes. I guess even today I would have a little difficulty in piloting a boat in through that reef in daylight, and in doing so I would have to alter my course twenty times. Yet my captain knows of a passage where our boat came in on just two compass headings. Some days later, when seas had calmed, we made a thorough search of the coastline, inquiring at almost every village for any wreckage of the whaleboat. But it was never seen again. Chapter 12. Conquering the Cookercookers Two challenges that seemed insurmountable continually tugged at my heartstrings. One was the vast, untapped Cookercooker country and the other the cannibal region of Western Papua's hinterland. The very name Cookercooker causes trembling lips among the Western Papuan tribesmen. Government patrol officers can testify that while on patrol they often have difficulty in retaining their hired carriers if they happen to see Cookercooker foot tracks. These savage little people are the pygmies of New Guinea. As far as I was able to ascertain, they are not cannibals. Rather, they kill for the sake of killing. Murder seems to be woven into the very fabric of their superstitions and customs. A man has not proved himself unless he has taken a life. And of course, the more lives he has taken, the better man he is. When a cooker-cooker warrior presents his chief with a freshly killed human head from another language area, he is immediately given a hornbill's feather, rather a rare bird in New Guinea, to place in his fuzzy hair. I have seen many cooker-cookers with so many feathers that their hair couldn't be seen. The instinct to kill is so deeply embedded in their way of life that their young women will have nothing to do with a young man who does not display hornbill feathers. The more feathers a young man wears, the more eligible he becomes. These savage people are deadly with their bows and arrows. I wouldn't give them a shot at me at 500 yards if I could avoid it. I have seen them draw an arrow and quickly fire at a little bird the size of a sparrow a hundred feet or more above. Inevitably, the little bird will fall to the ground and the arrow will most likely never be seen again. One day, while I was walking along a river bank with a couple of cooker-cooker warriors, one of them quickly drew an arrow and shot, even though I saw nothing in the water at the time. Moments later, a fish appeared on top of the water with half its innards torn out. The cooker-cookers use poisoned arrows against their enemies, but never in their search for food. There are two ways, at least, by which they poison their arrows. One is by the combined sap of certain trees and vines. The other is by plunging the arrowhead in putrefying human flesh, which results in septicemia. Both methods cause violent death within a few days. 
Their arrowheads are often tipped with human bone or bone from the cassowary, a large bird related to the ostrich family, and are carved so as to have a barbed hollow point. The poison is placed in the hollow and the bone is lightly glued to the arrow tip. The only way to get the arrow out is to push it through the victim. To try to withdraw it leaves the poisoned bone inside. Generally, a scratch from a poisoned arrow is all that is needed to cause death within a few days. The cooker-cookers are nomads who seldom establish a village. Instead, they live in makeshift huts comprised of a few sheets of bark leaning against trees or logs. They plant a garden and move on, knowing exactly when to return to reap their produce. Because of their constant fear of headhunting raids from other language areas, the men keep awake all night to guard their settlement. They sleep during the daylight hours while the women plant the gardens. Before my first visit among these people, I prayed and thought much, asking the master to prepare the way. The trip was carefully planned for the time when the fish were in the river's headwaters for the spawning season. The tribe's people can tell when the fish come in from the sea and travel up to the headwaters. When the news spread around the campus that the boat would be leaving within a few days for the headwaters of the Vailala River at the fringes of the Kukukuka country, the crew came to me one by one with many and varied reasons why they would not be able to make this particular trip. One said, Master, you know I am due for my holidays and I would like to take them now. Another decided that his wife's mother was sick and that he thought he should not be away. I understood, for they had grown up fearful of the dreaded cooker-cookers. However, I did not have any real difficulty in getting sufficient help to man the boat. I had with me my right-hand man, Pastor Paul Lama, a Solomon Islander, a man who had no fear in him. After travelling up the Vailala some days, we entered a tributary, the Avori River, and in a little while we knew we were in the Kukukuk country because we could see the little people darting from tree to tree. Sometimes all that we could see was an arrow tip protruding from behind the trunk of a tree. To be continued. Tune in again next week for the next episode of I Saw God's Hand, written by Elwyn Martin and read by Alan Lindsay. you enjoy the short presentation of how God led His people after the Reformation from lineagejourney.com William was in love with Jesus and set out to read his Bible again. Sitting here in this room and starting in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, he made his way methodically through the Bible using his Cruden's Concordance. When he came across a word or a verse that he did not understand, he would cross-reference it until he came to a full understanding. 
He came to Daniel 8.14, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed, and did not understand it. Rather than reading on, he stopped there, stayed there, studied it out, and his conclusions would have a far-reaching impact. The motivating factor in William's life was not a pursuit of head knowledge, but it was his love of Jesus. It was a deep love and a force that kept him going. As he continued his study of Daniel 8, he came to the conclusion that Jesus would come in about 25 years. As he studied and re-studied, he concluded in 1818 that Jesus would come around the year 1843. Yet despite having this great news, he did nothing about it, keeping it mainly to himself. He did tell a few friends, but did nothing publicly. He was worried that he would be made fun of and did not want to leave his hometown to speak. He did write some articles that were published, but as yet he had done no preaching. William struggled with the call to preach for 13 years. He heard in his mind over and over the words, go and tell the world. Finally, one day, he made a prayer of commitment that if he was asked to preach, then he would go. He felt this was a pretty safe fleece, for no one was going to ask a 50-year-old farmer to preach about the second coming. Not long after, his doorbell rang, and his nephew, Irvin Guilford, was there, and he asked him if he would come to Dresden to share the things that he had been studying. Rather than being thankful his prayer had been answered, he stormed out the door angrily. He walked out of his house and came to this maple grove here and paced up and down. His daughter Lucy followed him and after watching a while, she went back inside and said, Mommy, something's wrong with Daddy. You see, something was wrong. He was under conviction and could not reason his way out of it. His nephew lived over half an hour away, which meant he left his house before Miller prayed the prayer of commitment and he could thus see the moving of God in this situation. As the sign says, he went in a farmer and came out a preacher. After accepting the call to preach, Miller traveled extensively over the next 10 years across the northeastern parts of the United States with his prophecy charts and Bible with him. Many were converted and the revival wasn't linked to a particular denomination. Although Miller was a Baptist, one estimate has him winning over 40,000 to the Baptist Church and over 40,000 to the Methodist Church. It was not long before he would meet up with Joshua V. Hines, thus extending his influence from the spoken word to the written word. Maybe God is calling you to the ministry to preach. Maybe you have been resisting his call like William did for 13 years. I want to assure you that the best place to be is safe in the peace that you are not resisting the Holy Spirit and that you're following God's will for your life. If God is calling you, then step out in faith and let him lead.
view more episodes in the series, visit lineagejourney.com.